Welcome, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. Today is Monday, the 15th of September, 2014. And for those who keep track at home, not only is this the third Monday of the month, it is the earliest possible third Monday of the month for our regular film literature in the New World Order series. But I suppose you're probably not tuning in to find out about calendar eccentricities. You're probably here to talk about, or at least listen to people talk about, today's uh, to the subject of today's program, which, if you were keeping track last month, is going to be Contagion, the 2011 Hollywood flick dramatizing the idea of a epidemic disease ravaging the world. Very timely topic in a lot of ways, isn't it? And yes, it's this is uh, not only... Uh, of course, we always talk about the propagandistic aspects of various works of literature and, and cinema here on film literature in the New World Order, but uh, usually we have to use a little bit of, of tangential thinking and have to, to scry the tea leaves, as it were, for some of these topics and themes. But in this case, it can not only be... It's not only very blatant and on the surface, but it is actually explicitly a piece of propaganda, i.e. A, a piece of, uh, of, of cinema, of filmmaking that was, uh, that was engaged in with the conscious idea and decision to make it part of an activist campaign. And this is something that attentive listeners would have picked up on from my appearance on Revelations Radio News, episode 127, which will be linked up in the show notes in case you did miss that, in which I appeared with Tim Kilkenny talking about, well, a lot of different things, but we also talked about the Ebola panic. And he mentioned at that time that Contagion was an example of a film that was produced by something called Participant Media, that is uh, the media venture of billionaire Jeff Skoll. And it is specifically and on the record and uh, admittedly a propaganda effort, something that Jeff Skoll openly admitted on 60 Minutes. You know, he's so astute. Jeffrey Skoll, one of the first to sign the Giving Pledge, is using the billions he made as eBay's first president to fight what he calls global threats. Not just one, but five problems he's convinced pose immediate danger to humanity. Climate change, water security, pandemics, nuclear proliferation, and the Middle East conflict. Is there some argument to make sometimes that, that because people made a lot of money, right. that they, they may come to these problems with a certain arrogance, like, I know everything there is to know. I'm so smart guy. Let me tell you what to do. I think we all have uh, a danger. Arrogance. Feeling, like we know the answers. Right. And, and the reality is uh, we, we don't. But that does not keep Skoll from trying. In addition to this more traditional charitable giving, in 2004, he started the for-profit media company Participant to make movies that promote his philanthropic goals. And the purpose of the movies is what? Awareness is one. To create entertainment that inspires and compels social change. And so whether that is climate change or uh, dolphin hunting in Japan, or dealing with drug sentencing laws, uh, every film we do has a purpose and it has a social action campaign associated with the movie. And we try to get people involved in the issues of the movie to try to make a difference in those issues. But the problem with all of this may be that it shows how quickly charity can cross over into advocacy. Take the 2011 movie Contagion. Skoll took what he'd learned through his charitable work in pandemics 
and funded a movie to warn people that a virus could kill billions. On day one, there were two people, and then four, and then 16. In three months, it's a billion. That's where we're headed. And what did the movie accomplish for you? In many ways, it put pandemics back on the map that the, the public realized how important uh, our public health organizations are, for example. Um, a number of politicians that had seen the movie who were ready to vote on cuts to funding to the CDC uh, recognized that that would be a bad idea. So there it is, folks. It is absolutely 100% Participant media and Contagion in particular were uh, explicit pieces of propaganda. And yes, it had the effect of helping senators and Congress critters to vote for the funding of the CDC back at a time when people were wondering what the purpose of this organization really was. Well, don't worry, in case that propaganda didn't work, I'm sure the latest Ebola panic will have uh, once again brought the, the Center for Disease Creation, I mean control, back for front and center into the public spotlight. So... Today we're going to be dissecting this work of propaganda, and here to do that is, of course, Tim Kilkenny of Revelations Radio News at revelationsradionews.com. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, James, and I want to upfront apologize to everybody who had to watch this piece of propaganda based <laughs> on the conversation that I had with you. You say that, and yet I actually, I want to say, I don't want to say I enjoyed watching it. I, it certainly wasn't that. But I, I, I actually found it very interesting to watch this because, of course, I was watching it very specifically for, for that propaganda um, side of things. And from that perspective, it's very interesting to, to sort of dissect it. But yes, I, I do sometimes think about how this series contributes to the uh, to lining the pocketbooks of these Hollywood moguls. So, <laughs> well, I would certainly never encourage people to illicitly acquire these uh, movies, but uh, if you do, well. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tim Kilkenny, well, <laughs> uh, let's talk. Uh, first of all, we usually start by talking about why this particular book or movie was chosen. So, so let's just get that on the table. What what brought this to your attention? What brought this to your mind? How did you encounter this movie, and why do you think that this is important? Sure. I think I actually watched Contagion before I saw that 60 Minutes piece. And I, I at the time, just thought, well, you know, that was a terror. And I think, you know, I do consume a little bit more of the, the movie theater type of media than you do. I know you kind of stay away from it. So I think there are some of us out there who look at it. And, you know, it's interesting to see the themes that are in it. So I, I did... I did rent it instead of purchasing it. That way I didn't have to actually contribute too much to their pockets. But anyway, um, I remember watching it uh, way back when and thought, ah, that was a pretty dumb movie. Like it just, it wasn't that good. Uh, it was extremely heavy handed. Uh, and I just, I remember, I think my wife, uh, you know, left in the middle of the movie, just, just was not interested in it at all. And it wasn't until I watched or, you know, listened to that 60 minutes interview where they called the, you know, the, uh, the 60 minute story was called The Giving Pledge, a new club for billionaires. And in that, they say the wealthiest 400 of Americans are worth over $2 trillion. They own as much wealth as the bottom half of American households combined. And you'd be surprised, but they're giving away large sums of money. This is the golden age of philanthropy. And of course, it was this huge uh, rah rah, the billionaires are so great. You know, our overlords really do care about us. And here's how they're you know, given money out in order to help us. But of course, it's people like Bill Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates, and, and all these other people whom, you know, we kind of know their MO is kind of eugenics and, 
you know, the uh, global political power and whatnot. But one I didn't know was Jeffrey Skoll. And Jeffrey Skoll, of course, comes on and says, hey, I'm doing participant media, just like that clip you just played. And I remember it all of a sudden it rings a bell in my head. I think I've actually watched quite a few movies where I remember seeing that. And they were sometimes good, sometimes bad. I need to look into this a little further. And that's when I kind of brought it up to you. But uh, that's what kind of brought me back to Contagion. Also with the recent Ebola outbreak, uh, it seemed like kind of an apt time to to go ahead and, and review it. But, I mean, I was going to just list off a couple other movies that have been done by them and thought maybe we could just talk about that briefly. Or Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Uh, a couple of them. The... The Internet's Own Boy, which is Aaron Schwartz, which is funny because I had actually recommended that to you previously because I thought it was an interesting view on Aaron Schwartz. Then you've, you know, uh, follow that up with like an inconvenient truth. And of course, these are in no certain order, but an inconvenient truth. We're all pretty aware of what that is and what, you know, uh, message that is portraying. Fast Food Nation, I was surprised to find on here, as well as Good Night and Good Luck. Um, Lincoln, I don't think that should come as a, too much of a surprise to anybody that saw that movie because there had to be some sort of political motivation because the movie wasn't that good in my personal opinion. Uh, Food Inc., which is slightly disturbing because that's, I loved that movie, you know, when it first came out. I thought, oh, great, finally the one size fits all, you know, key to telling people about Monsanto. And then, uh, of course, Siriana and a couple others. So it's interesting that I agree you know, with the premise of some of these movies, but then some of them are so overt, like Contagion. Um, so, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's interesting for a lot of reasons. One of them is the fact that this is now the third participant media movie that we've looked at, at film on film literature in the New World Order, although it's the first time we've actually explicitly looked at participant media, which is really my fault for not making this connection, so I'm very glad you've brought it to our attention. It's also the second Steven Soderbergh movie that we've looked at at film literature in the New World Order, the other one being Syriana, and then the other participant media movie that we've watched in this series is Charlie Wilson's War, so definitely some very interesting movies propagandistically going on here, and ones that we've dissected in the past, but you bring up that interesting point, Food, Inc., a, a very, very good movie that was, you know, that brought a lot of attention to a very important subject. And that does raise the big question mark. Well, well how does this play into the agenda of someone like a Jeff Skoll? And what, what is the propagandistic point of a, uh, of a movie like that? And I think perhaps we might not want to go into the uh, sort of the extreme part of this, which is to say that anything that comes out from this is necessarily bad or that we can't use. Again, it might be a baby with the bathwater situation. And you did, as you say, recommend the internet's own boy. So perhaps some of this work is actually valuable for one reason or another. And uh, we shouldn't just necessarily be dismissing it simply because of the participant media connection. But it is something that we should obviously be keeping in mind, I, I suppose. Absolutely. I think when you know this, when you recognize the source, I mean, you can kind of really, really think, you know, really look at it as what it is. Very likely a piece of, you know, art or media that's trying to sway you in one way or another, you know, and it might be that you do agree with some of the stuff that's going on, like, you know, Food Inc. I haven't gone back to watch it to see if there's anything I disagree with, but I remember loving it in the theater when I saw it here uh, in Seattle. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's just important to remember where that comes from. And I guess I if people don't know, Jeffrey Skoll was the second employee of eBay, who I guess Pierre Omidyar hired him. And how weird that, 
you know, these two guys who start a site about bidding on people's stuff all over the world end up, you know, being so influential in our media, of course, with Pierre Omidyar and uh, his whole uh, situation with uh, Glenn Greenwald. And now we have this guy running participant media. Just an interesting, interesting group of people that kind of make their way into media production here. Uh, and you also mentioned about Steve, Steven Soderbergh. It wasn't participant media, but Steven Soderbergh and Jude Law, who's one of the stars of, of course, Contagion, actually recently did a movie called Side Effects, which was a year or two ago, which is about, you know, some drug that comes out. And it's, uh, I think, a gal ends up murdering her husband, but she's on these SSRIs, and then it's kind of the fallout from that. So hmm. I uh, haven't even heard of that particular movie. Yeah. That's how far out of the loop I am. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I'm go. posting this series, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can always uh, call on us people who watch a little more TV, maybe a little bit too much. Well, that's what I generally tend to do. All right. Well, <laughs> we should also note that Participant Media has a website, participantmedia.com, in which you can find the list of the films that they've worked on. And the interesting part of this, perhaps, is that there is a social action campaign associated with every single one of the films that they work on, including, of course, Contagion. And if you uh, click on the link, you can get taken to the Contagion social action campaign website, where they feed you with all sorts of information about various pandemics and uh, and pandemic response, the different uh, global bodies that coordinate response to pandemics and how they love and care about you. And and uh, some of the, uh, the, the, the subheadings of these uh, parts of this website are pretty interesting. For example, uh, Epicenter, it's not a matter of if, but when, which is uh, somewhat reminiscent of the tagline for the movie itself, uh, which is, uh, nothing spreads like fear. Um, so I think they should know about that spreading fear like they do in this movie. Um, but let's so let's start getting into the the propaganda associated with this. And I think one of let's let's just start here. Here's an interesting little tidbit that I picked up on at about 18 minutes and 30 seconds. For those of you following along at home, um, they're talking about uh, I, I believe it's the uh, the Kate Winslet character who is a epidemic intelligence service uh, right. representative of the CDC who's doing the sort of forensic investigation trying to find out who you know touched what when kind of thing and she's talking to various officials or various people that the uh, the patient zero had been in touch with and she at, at some point she says something like um uh, a plastic shark in a movie will make people avoid the water but uh, but if you put slap warnings all over cigarettes about how they're going to kill you no one pays attention and I thought that was particularly interesting because that's really the movie in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, this yeah. is a movie trying to have that same effect that Jaws had on making people scared of the water, which, of course, we all know is pretty ridiculous considering how few people die every year of shark attacks. And yet, of course, there was that phenomenon in the summer after Jaws was released that people were uh, avoiding going to the beach because they were so scared of sharks. It is uh, ridiculous, but it is a fact of human psychology that we are very much manipulated by what we see. And I think that's, I mean, that's the pretty uh, you know, film in a film kind of uh, moment where, you know, this is the exact thing that they're going for in this movie. And in fact, mostly in participant media generally, they're trying to make us afraid in this case of something that most people aren't afraid of. And uh, that's, I, 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 if that's the standard by which we're measuring the movie, I guess the question is, how effective are they? I mean, do you think that as a propaganda piece, this is actually effective or does it fall flat on its face? I don't know on that one. I think, I I think it's so heavy-handed, it's hard for me to tell. 
Uh, but I, I think I told you, you know, my wife left the movie. I don't think it makes a good movie. I think it's a fun piece of propaganda to look at and see the, you know, overt messaging. But I don't know. I mean, I actually was searching around looking for a couple different things and, you know, while thinking about and researching this film. And I came across like an NPR story where they actually have someone on who talks about the fact that Contagion and then the movie from the 90s, I think it's called Outbreak or something like this. Those two movies have contributed to the hysteria and, and, and fear factor in, uh, you know, the swine flu and, and the, the uh, just the idea of a pandemic. And they, you know, go into, you know, the reason behind it is because, you know, it's something that can't be controlled. And I think that that is one of the things that they really try to drill home in this movie. You know, for instance, they talk about, you know, the average person touches their face two to three time, thousand times a day. Oh, no. And, you know, one of the things that they do at the beginning to really, you know, kind of hammer the point home is each person that gets sick, you know, that we see come into uh, getting infected with this virus. Uh, they then show uh, or right before they show that person, they'll show Hong Kong, this many million people. And it's just like, oh, no, there's so many people and so many germs. It could just spread out like wildfire from there. And, you know, it just really kind of nails the point home that, hey, you have no control of this. And if you live near one of these population areas and this starts, you're done. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that, too. I was, I, to be honest, I think that this started out very effectively. I think that the opening part of the the first act of this movie was very, very effective. And it, if it had have maintained the sort of emotional drama that it had in that, that first part, I think it could have been much more effective. And I'm not trying to tell these filmmakers how to be better propagandists, but uh, I'm glad they're not. Um, but I, I, I'm going to admit that I was quite affected by that that part, that, that opening I don't know what it was, 10, 20 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever it was, sure. yeah. seeing the spread of the virus. And then when it, uh, it takes uh, the, the main character's wife and son, uh, it, a very emotional you know, scene. And, and myself as a father trying to think about that happening to my wife and son. Oh, you know, that's, that's horrible. So it was very effective in that way. And, and one thing that stood out to me just from a technical perspective is that I never, ever, ever in my life have ever noticed color grading in a movie and yet I noticed the color grading in in these scenes they were extremely they were just extreme they were either very very blue kind of uh, colors or they were extremely bright and kind of vivacious I, I don't know I don't even know how orange, to describe it orangey, yeah exactly orangey like, yeah blue and yeah. orange which are, are very um, contrasty colors and that they love to use in these types of mind control films if people look into that but uh, I noticed that very much and it was a very stylized kind of look and now that I think about it now that I realize and connect this with Syriana the other Soderbergh movie that we've looked at it, it has a similar sort of slick look to it but I thought that was all very effective from the propagandistic side of things but as it develops as the movie goes forward it turns into this very procedural kind of drama yes. and it's very clinical uh yep. it, it kind of examines it from i mean you get glimpses of the sort of the breakdown of society and you, you certainly see a lot of like p images of garbage on the streets and fires burning in, in, uh, uh, in various places and people looting things you get that kind of view but you never actually really feel it so you don't really i mean you're not really emotionally invested in what happens in this movie and it just i think you're right there's this, this detachment that makes it 
a pretty ineffective piece of propaganda in a lot of ways. I mean, it shows you sort of the, the process of what goes on or what could go on in an epidemic, but it doesn't really make you connect with it, which is, uh, I think, the big failure. But I, uh, as I say, I'm glad it fails on, to connect on that uh, regard, unless you had a different take on the way that it plays out. No, I think that you actually nailed it perfectly. And I think having just seen it for the first time, you can, I think, more easily remember that that first 20 minutes, and I forgot how uh, uh, emotional it is to, for Matt Damon's character to to lose his wife and son. And then it just starts off and you're like, oh, no, what is going to happen? This movie could go anywhere. They're already, you know, killing off these main characters. And this is just, you know, I can't imagine what that feels like. And then you're right. It does take a very, that's, I, I would agree. It was a good, a good synopsis. It gets very clinical. And then it's almost, you know, like a, uh, a predictive programming where after the, you know, main character loses his life. It shows you, okay, or loses his wife, loses her life. It shows you, okay, now this is what's going to happen, okay? And the military is going to be the one that enforces the quarantine. The military is going to be the one that threatens detainment. The news is going to know what's going on the whole time. And the CDC is going to be fighting to figure this out and, and whatnot. But it's funny that even in their clinical drawing out of the uh, story, they still had room to to slide in a few other things. For instance, we haven't even talked about Jude Law's character. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're going to have to talk about this character uh, uh, very, very much. Okay, so for uh, uh, just to refresh everyone's memory, of course, we're talking about Alan Krumweed. Kroom, I'm reading this. I don't remember what the What a terrible name. You're already, <laughs> spo- you're already supposed to not like it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Krum, Krumweed. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. sound like someone you're supposed to have He's warm, fuzzy feelings He's a crummy character. So, um, reading from the uh, the uh, uh, the Wikipedia synopsis, which is going off of the the notes uh, production notes that were uh, uh, provided with this film. So it says Kremwide is an ardent conspiracy theorist who, according to law, is the so-called index patient for what becomes a quote parallel epidemic of fear and panic. We definitely wanted him to have a messianic streak," said Soderbergh, whom Law t- talked to during the the character's creation creating creation process creating process the two men discussed the appearances and the behaviors of a typical anti-government conspiracy theorist producer gregory jacobs commented that what's interesting is that you're not really sure about him is the government really hiding something and does the herbal remedy he's talking about really work i think we all suspect at one time or another that we're not getting the whole truth and in that sense kremwide represents the audience's point of view End quote. All right. No, that's, I mean, that's, there's so many interesting little tidbits in there, including the fact that apparently Soderbergh and Log, you know, were sitting there trying to have some kind of jam session about the appearance and behaviors of a typical anti-government conspiracy theorist. And they come up with this, it's not even a beret. What's that hat called? A deer stock? No, it's not even a... That yeah. that hat that he's wearing, that which is ridiculous, and <laughs> and the way that he kind of presents himself, it, it is uh, slightly unstable and yet, yeah, slightly messianic. I think that's a, probably a good word for it. Um, obviously, a thoroughly unlikable character, and we're supposed to be obviously spitting at him because of the way that he's acted throughout this. And of course, he's just in it for personal profit, p- pimping and uh, and promoting a herbal remedy. Uh, for Scythia, which may or may not have any effect on the, the epidemic. So a lot to dissect there. Uh, what's your take on this character and the function that he's playing in this propaganda narrative? I think that uh, the function he's playing in this propaganda narrative is to uh, make people think that anyone who has an opposing view to 
the government is a crazy conspiracy theorist. And they go several different things, which I mentioned in the previous interview we did on Revelations Radio News, where, uh, you know, Jude Law ambushes this guy outside of the CDC or outside some sort of medical establishment. And uh, the guy says, leave me alone. And he says, come on, I'm an investigative journalist. And the guy says, blogging is not writing, it's graffiti with punctuation. And it's continue. It's like so heavy-handed that they want to discredit anyone who has an opposing view. I even have a clip of uh, Jude Law on doing an interview where he basically said so as almost as much. Where basically he said that you know the guy's conspiratorial and has a very natural anti-government feeling or something like this. One of the things that cracked me up though the the most about Jude Law's character is his teeth. Because Jude Law, I think by almost all standards in the world, is a, a pretty guy. You know, he's a good-looking guy. So it's hard for us to not like this guy, right? Because he's so pretty. So they, what they had to do is they had to make his front teeth crooked. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I took to the internet to investigate this. And I want to read something that I came across on, uh, you know, Yahoo is always a good uh, spot to see the pulse of the internet, at least the kind of the... the uh, uh, unthinking majority. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, so I come across this. In Contagion, what happened to Jude Law's teeth? They look horrid, especially the upper incisors. And the answer to this Yahoo question was, yeah, I was wondering the same thing, too, when I saw the TV appearance. I thought his tooth was going to fall out or something, going to make Forsythia look too harmful to people since he was going to try and take it. I think the only reason they put the false tooth on him was to make him seem ugly. I think we're supposed to not like his character, getting rich on mis misinformation and all. I don't know. I wish they hadn't done it. It's distracting, and obviously people don't get it because people keep asking about his teeth. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of funny because it's like they were so heavy-handed that there were people who were like, is Jude Law's teeth messed up? Like, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> we can't have someone who even looks good be an anti-government conspiracy theorist, clearly. Well, right. I, I like to think that they were doing research on anti-government conspiracy theorists and the way they look and act. And they uh, came across me and thought, hey, there's a guy with weird teeth. <laughs> let's let's copy that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it is it's, it really is heavy handed. That's a good way of putting it. And yet, OK, so let's approach this from the other angle, because... As obviously we're meant to not quite like this person, and obviously in the end he turns out to be a criminal and a pretty reprehensible guy, but having said that, he is right about a lot of things, and he does uncover some things, and uh, for example, of course, there's the confrontation uh, that he does with the CDC representative on CNN in a very unrealistic television interview, we'll put it that way, but at any rate, he confronts this this uh, the CDC representative, and he starts... Uh, talking about some of the dynamics of how the epidemic spreads and things. So he's, he has his facts right on a number of things. And he also exposes what is very true, that this CDC representative, in fact, gave his wife advance notice of the lockdown that was going to happen in Chicago so she could get out of the city, which is a pretty unethical thing to do on the big scheme of things. This is, a, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why uh, officials would be prevented from doing something like that and prevented from giving their, their spouses and friends the inside track on something like that. And that's why ultimately he's going to have to testify to Congress and there's going to be ramifications at the end of the movie. But, so there, there's a lot of ways in which this conspiracy theorist is right, and yet 
um, he's still portrayed very unsympathetically. And the CDC representative in question, played by Lawrence Fishburne, a.k.a. what's-his-name from The Matrix, uh, is the uh, the person who does the bad thing, but he's he's the good guy. So it's, I mean, they're, they're doing some, in, they're inserting some interesting parts to this narrative. But I think there's at least a couple of ways in which you can see the conspiracy theorist character as being maybe not a nice guy in and of himself, but someone who is at least right about a lot of the things he's talking about. Absolutely. I'm going to try and play this clip if you don't mind. I think I might be able to do it. A campaigner for, I think, um, freedom of speech, but also for uh, conspiracy theories. And unfortunately, I think sometimes his, his ego and his pride get in the way of his convictions. I think he has uh, an inbuilt reaction to uh, government-backed vaccination programs and government-backed research. Uh, he has a cynical view of, of, of the sort of legal process and the governmental process behind uh, investigation on medical issues. And so that often, I think, leads him generally into areas of alternatives um, and, and then raising alternatives and, and, and watching them be um, covered up. Um, where he's very interesting to this story is that he, he actually does get the lead on everyone else. He sees something before everyone else and therefore has the run on them for quite a while. So hopefully you heard that. And that was Jude Law explaining his own character. But I think he kind of summarized what you were saying there, that he does get the, the run on them for a little bit. But at the same time, he's, you know, I love that they actually wrote that into the character, that he's extremely cynical when it comes to government vaccine. <laughs> when he correctly, again, points out that people died as a result of the 1976 swine flu vaccination campaign and other people were incapacitated and paralyzed and the government ended up having to compensate people to the tunes of millions of dollars for that, uh, that campaign. Exactly. Uh, which he points out in the movie. And again, all yes. completely true. And yet yes. we're still supposed to, I, I guess by association, we're supposed to dislike what he's saying and probably right. distrust it because a lot of people in the audience won't know that actual history. So they'll think, right. oh, he's a crazy conspiracy theorist. It mustn't be true. Yep. That's point number like three or four here in my notes. Crazy blogger points out original swine flu vaccine actually killed people. Yep. 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 So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting sort of multiple layer thing that they have going on there. And and it could have been a lot worse, I suppose. It could have been he really was crazy and just making things up. But he was actually right about an awful lot. But just because he is that unlikable character, I guess we're supposed to, you know, tarnish everything that comes from his, uh, his, his point of view, his it's, mouth. I also have in my notes, print media is dying, says crazy conspiracy theorist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And he comes off looking like a madman trying to get them to cover this this thing, and uh, and they won't. So he's he's shouting at them, oh, you know, you, you guys, I'll, I'll save a spot on the bus for you. Right, and he only, remember too, he refers to Facebook and social media. That's where he got Lawrence, Fish, you know, found out Lawrence Fishburne had warned his wife about getting out of town or whatever. So he's also on social media, you know, which is another form of reality in its own. But several times they point out that he is only interested in page views, leading people to believe that if you have an anti-government, anti-vaccine stance and you question things or question authorities, not only are you trying to you know, profit from it, but all you really care about is page views. There were two million people when I woke up this morning that came to me to look for the truth is one of the quotes that he says. And, it, and it's it. 
it paints alternative media as only looking for page views, only looking on Facebook for their information, uh, you know, controlling this alternate reality that is, you know, the Internet and then getting people to follow along. There's a great scene where he is questioned after being arrested. The guy's like, oh, I would arrest your computer if I could. You know, you've clearly put all these people at risk. And then uh, within a, like a minute or two, someone comes in and, you know, notifies the guy interrogating him that he's made bail because, you know, there's 20, you know, 2.7 million people out there who have, you know, contributed to his being released or, you know, making bail for him. Right. And it kind of weirded me out because I, I remember all the times that like Luke Rakowski got arrested and then everybody would like, you know, call and bomb the, you know, phone bomb the uh the police stations and stuff when actual alternative media people get arrested. And then here they show it in this like, extremely negative light. Like, look at this crooked tooth Jude Law. He gets to walk out and do more of his graffiti blogging, you know, because he can make bail. Yeah, yeah. It was 12 million by the end. So oh. there you go. No, I, I, I see that, but I kind of read it differently because I read that as part of that messianic streak. Because if you were sitting there saying, oh, you know, 2 million people, 12 million people are coming to me for the truth, asking me what is truth. I mean, that pretty specifically puts you in that Christ role, doesn't it? Yeah, asking good someone point. what is truth. Um, well, interesting. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, again, there's a lot to be said about that particular propaganda um, angle in this, but um, there's a lot of other interesting sort of procedural parts to this procedural drama, which ultimately, as we say, it ends up becoming. And it does show a lot of the mechanics of the, the pandemic lockdown, the quarantine, where he's trying to go, for example, across the state line to Wisconsin, but it's shut down by the the, uh, the army, uh, the militaries, they're shutting down the border. And he gets out of his car and is trying to argue with the guy. And he's, uh, the guy ultimately says something like, uh, get back in your car or I'll detain you. And uh, the guy yes. says, where? And then he just yep. gets back in the car and goes away. So, <laughs> again, it's it's really bizarre. There's these, it's just sort of like little scenes and snippets of this society and chaos and lockdown and all of this. But we don't really, you don't really get a sense of it in any, you know, visceral way. So, again, I think it's a propaganda fail in that regard. But it does show, for example, the FEMA quarantine camps, the yes. the big stadium that they set up for the, the triage and treating uh, and, and quarantining patients. Um, they show that... FEMA runs FEMA runs out of body bags. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. So, the, uh, when did we run out of body bags? Uh, two days ago, and uh, the Canadians are sitting on their supply waiting, waiting to see what happens or something. And yeah. uh, that's interesting because, of course, one of the things we do know about is that FEMA... Is it FEMA or DHS? Whatever has stored, however, many millions of portable coffins outside of uh, Georgia in Georgia. You know, it's not FEMA. too far from the CDC. <laughs> I mean, some of that craziness that's gone on in recent years. Um, they talk about a plane with an isolation pod to bring people home when they're sick, which, of course, we saw actually come true in uh, the recent Ebola pandemic. Um, what else? Uh, oh. This was an interesting one. 74 minutes and 15 seconds. Homeland Security wants to know if we can put a vaccination in the water supply, like fluoride, cure oh. everyone all at once. <laughs> That's a nice little tidbit to put in there. Yeah, why don't they just do that? Why don't they just put the cure in the water supply and then everyone's cured? Just like fluoride. Now none of us have cavities. Exactly. It works so well. <laughs> oh. Uh, and then, of course, the finally, there's the vaccine lottery, and you know they go by birthday, and oh, everyone's waiting. Oh, when can I get my vaccine? When can I get my vaccine? So uh, it's just so loaded with so much 
propaganda instilled specifically, and I think this is, again, explicit, it's specifically to counter the sort of bad rap that the CDC and the WHO got in the swine flu pandemic crisis hype hoax of 2009. And they even reference it specifically. I wrote down uh, during one meeting where somebody actually says, I mean, the CDC lost all credit credibility because of their overreaction to the swine flu. And uh, here's this movie making it look as if, again, the CDC is going to be the saviors of humanity when push comes to shove. And as uh, as Skoll noted in that clip that we played earlier, yeah, this caused uh, 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 Congress critters who were going to vote against CDC funding to vote for it because now they realize how important the CDC is. So mission accomplished in that perspective, I guess. Um, and to make shark us... in the water has been portrayed. Yeah, exactly. The shark in the water. And it, it maybe it's not meant to be a general public... Uh, a panic to the public, but um, if it works on the legislators, hey, that's that's probably good enough. Did you find that this had a, at all a race type view? I didn't think of that, but uh, yeah, my wife my wife just pointed out that uh, I you know sweaty people that cough are, are scary, especially Chinese sweaty people that are coughing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah, is yeah, yeah. It, it's it's like if you think about it, that whole first ten minutes is just nothing but. You know, people coughing and rubbing their face and touching drinks and everything like that. So I don't know. I don't know if it, if there was any uh, race overtones or not. But I mean, it, you know, they do say the, the bird flu, it's going to come from Hong Kong, the streets of Hong Kong or, you know, SARS, it comes from China or, you know, it's going to come from here, come from there. Right. Um, you might you might not be able you might have a different view on that being over in Japan, but it was just something that, oh, you know, no, it perpetuates right. yeah. the stereotype, right. at least in the the area of origin right 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 no i i that that's yeah that's all very well observed but uh i think also i mean i was really trying to think at the end of this movie well what was this i mean what's really the take-home point of this movie what are they trying to really what's the message here and i think other than not shaking the hands of chefs in in casinos <laughs> in macau um i guess the uh the other point of this of course is just to you know sit down shut up listen to the authority figures and do what they tell you and eventually you'll be okay i think I think the message is the CDC is the good guys. Yeah, if you l- yeah. think about Lawrence Fishburne, he actually gives his antidote away at the end. He gives it to the janitor's son who, he, you know, the janitor's comes to him and says, hey, I think my son might have ADHD oh, at the was, beginning. Yeah. I was wondering then, who that was. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, he actually doesn't sh- give himself the antidote or whatever it would be. Uh, he gives it to that, that little boy. So kind of right. sacrificing himself to make sure that that kid was safe first. Yeah. You know, and that's a really overt, hey, the CDC are good guys. Look yeah, at him. Yeah, yeah. He told his wife to get out of town, but here he is giving his antidote to the uh, to the young kid. He, you know, the CDC really does care and, and they're right. they're going to help us. Yeah, exactly. No, good. Good call. I completely didn't pick up on who that was. I was like, who is this kid? But it, the, the thing about that scene is it made me realize that Matt Damon, uh, uh, he's teared up a couple of times over his wife during the movie, but his son might as well have never existed. It's like, who? What? Oh, yeah, my son died? It's just, there's there's no mention whatsoever. It's, he just sort of disappears. And- I thought that was funny, too. It was like, yeah, he forgot, and I think he just felt terrible that he had forgot. And I think there, you're supposed to attribute that to, you know, watching your spouse die in front of you. Would you remember your son was also sick? But, yeah, I don't know. As but, a father, I can tell you, yeah, I probably would. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. It's, yeah. There's so many different 
aspects to this. And as, I mean, again, uh, if you examine this as propaganda, it's interesting. But as a movie, I think it does fail on every on every level at the end. And uh, And there's so many, so many loose kind of threads that are, I guess they're kind of dealt with and resolved in some form or other, but they're just thrown out there as just kind of bizarre little tangents that the movie takes, like the, the kidnapping of uh, the, the yes, doctor in, right. in China and all of that. There's definitely more that could have been elaborated on there. Exactly, but yeah. As we wrap up here, I'm sure, let's wrap up where it wrapped up. And how about that last scene, the last 30 seconds where, you know, mysteriously uh, there's a company, or not mysteriously, there's a, you know, Almost in the cover of night, a company is tearing down trees in, uh, is it in China there? And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then a bat flies out and he goes and grabs a banana and then he flies over a, uh, a pig farm and he's eating the banana, but he drops part of it. And then a pig eats it. And then the pig gets picked up by somebody who goes and takes, you know, a butcher who takes it and slaughters it. And then he sticks his finger in the mouth of that pig. And then he wipes his hand on his apron and goes out and shakes Gwyneth Paltrow's hand. Boom. All that stuff accidentally combined together, making a killer vaccine, you know, everything or not a vaccine, a killer virus, uh, which, you know, kind of leads to the thought process that, you know, all these sort of things happen randomly. And there's no way anybody in the lab ever would have worked to combine those things. It just happens. Extremely important point, because they that is one of the things that the crazy conspiracy theorist does mention, um, talking about bioweapons and that sort of thing, but that's, of course, immediately dismissed, and we as the audience know that that's not the case, as you say, especially in the last... 30 seconds we find out exactly how this came about and it was just this natural process and of course then again sort of the take-home message uh, the idea that this could be bioweapon research i mean that's just craziness don't even think about that so you're right again it reinforces the the narrative that we have of these these types of viruses and how they where they come from and how they're dealt with and ultimately how they're cured by vaccine just lining up and rolling up your sleeve so uh, yeah, there's so much to talk about here, but um, but also, I mean, uh, here we are in the midst of the Ebola panic that's still continuing to go on, and in fact, even a new un- unknown respiratory vi- virus that's sweeping across America at the moment, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so uh, this is an ongoing concern, obviously, and we've uh, obviously I did talk about this in my Ebola podcast and so the various darker, darker aspects of this and the idea of genetically engineering, you know, viruses to be bioweapons and all of this. But uh, I just wanted to throw this out there because I thought it was particularly interesting. There's a, um, there was an NBC article the other day that I tweeted out that had an interesting line um, talking about the, 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 the patients, the Ebola patients in the United States and what had become of them. And it made the observation that the, United, the, the, the patients in the U.S. who were re- receiving uh, good patient care and good nutrition uh, have all done remarkably well and have recovered quite, quite well. But obviously contrasting that with what's going on in West Africa and the just the, the infrastructure and the conditions that they're living in where people are dying en masse. And I think that is an important point to this because I'm not one of those people who doesn't believe that there is such a thing as diseases or, you know, viruses or that, that that's a thing. I mean, I know there are people out there in the alternative media who propound that. I'm not one of them. But I do believe that there is, I mean, so much of the, these pandemics' ability to spread 
does have to do with our our underlying immune system and whether or not it's in good shape and whether or not we're you know properly receiving good nutrition and things of that sort um much more so than it does about any magic vaccine that's going to cure everything and uh and i think it's interesting to see that being confirmed with this latest ebola outbreak and the fact that yeah if you get good if you're basically looked around uh, looked after around the clock and, and given plenty of rest and good nutrition hey you know in a, in a stress-free environment you're probably going to live and if you don't you're probably going to well you're you might die so again, I think that's just an interesting contrast to bring into this mix and to to say that once again, I mean, I think it's ultimately our immune systems are really miraculous in so many different ways. And uh, and maybe that's the real take-home message of, of these types of pandemic outbreaks is we should be concentrating more on keeping ourselves in good shape so that we don't have to be living in constant fear of these types of pandemics coming along and killing all of us. Yeah, amen. I, I, you know, that's a I can't agree more. All right, awesome. Okay, well, as I said, uh, I was a guest on Revelations Radio News where we did talk about this a little bit, so that will be in the show notes. And I won't even misspell Revelations Radio News like you misspelled Corbett Report in the show notes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Corbett really? Report! Come on. The, the well, are you French? Have you ever seen that uh, Bill O'Reilly thing where he interviews? Uh, <laughs> Uh, Stephen Colbert. I think I have, but I don't remember. And he's like, is it Colbert or Colbay? And he, and he, he's like, it's, it's you know, Papa Bear. And he's like, it's a Colbert or Colbay. And he like gets really loud. And, and, and uh, Stephen Colbert, Colbert he, says, uh, he says, you know, people don't often give you credit for how loud you say what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. It's just so too it's easy. The, is it the Corbet report? Maybe uh, it should become the Corbet rapport. The report. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The, the, I'll go back and fix that. I've said this many times, but it is nonetheless true. Uh, I When I first started the Corbett Report, it literally did not cross my mind that it, anyone would ever confuse it with the Colbert Report. That's how silly and naive I was. But there you go. I was well, wrong. Anyway, um, so we will put the link into that particular edition of Revelations Radio News. And, of course, into Revelations Radio News generally so that people can keep in touch with you just for people who haven't heard the podcast tell us a little bit about what it is you do sure well uh i have a friend named andrew hoffman he wrote a book called uh eugenics uh in the new world order a christian perspective we met a long time ago a couple four or five six years ago and uh kind of touched base and agreed on, on a lot of the same stuff and he was going to put out another book and I was going to, you know, make a website and this and that. And one day I just called and said, hey, let's do let's do a show. Would you be interested? And he said, yeah, I don't you know, I don't think I can get another book out. I think I would like to do a little bit more current event stuff. And so for the last 127 episodes, as we like to say, I say semi-weekly, uh, but then again, we took a long summer hiatus. Andrew says whenever we want. But <laughs> uh, we try to get a podcast out commenting on the news Uh we're often sarcastic. I was I served in the military for uh, four years, so we have a kind of an interesting view on the military and uh, how the more often than not they're just kind of being used as cannon fodder. And uh, we also kind of talk about some spiritual stuff, not too much, but from a Christian perspective, we believe a lot of the stuff that's going on that you know with the New World Order and all of that stuff was predicted in the Book of Revelation, hence the name Revelations Radio News. And uh, let me just put in my personal uh, seal of support on the work you guys do. Uh, it is a sarcastic take, to be sure, but <laughs> it really resonates well with me, and I love you, the, guy, the way you guys 
you know, riff on some of these stories. And you always, I think, have pretty good insights. And and it's one of those podcasts that I really genuinely like because there's always new stories in there that I didn't pick up on uh, during the week. So I really do appreciate the work you guys are doing. I hope people will check it out. And I hope uh, people will uh, properly uh, take take uh, the precautions, the vaccinations of truth against the propaganda when they watch things like uh, Contagion. And hopefully this discussion will help you with that. So, Tim Kilkenny, thank you uh, so much for joining us today. Thanks a bunch for having me, James. All right, there he goes, Tim Kilkenny of Revelations Radio News. And that's it for us folks this month. But of course, as always, before we check out, why don't we check in to the conversation that's happening as a result of last month's conversation, FLNWO number 18 on John Carpenter's They Live, which you might recall, if you cast your mind back one month, we had a conversation about with Guillermo Jimenez of TracesOfReality.com, and that received quite a bit of feedback. And since, of course, feedback can now be left directly on the CorbettReport.com website by Corbett Report members who sign in and write their comments on the website, why don't we just go through a few of the comments that were left last month? For example, we had Matthew Raymer reading, uh, sorry, writing uh, about uh, the... Uh, the relevance of Frank Herbert's Dune series in relation to the idea of the sleeper has awoken and, and other such ideas which resonate with They Live. And he also brings in the works of Jacques Ellul. Very interesting comment there. Um, Tom D says that he watched this movie because he had heard uh, David Icke talking about it in one of his shows. And uh, Patrick from London actually writes in with some answers to some of the questions that Guillermo and I mused about on air last month about uh, the miniseries, the TV miniseries V, which came out in 1983 and featured, uh, I suppose, a similar uh, storyline of some sort. But uh, he points out the origins of that novel back, uh, sorry, that miniseries back in the 1935 anti-fascist novel by Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here, and he provides some details on that. Uh, Kevin Kimmich writes, one of the fundamental ideas, I think, in, in the tradition is that the world of man, or in general terms, civilization, is really the world of lies. It's a lie in the sense that it is unreal, lived totally in the mind. Plato's got the allegory of the cave, but really the entire set of Socratic dialogues has the character Socrates trying to find his way out of the artificial world. I think the modern practitioners of the esoteric tra tradition have basically rejected skepticism and philosophy and have embraced crass materialism and philosophical and practical nihilism. They're just murderers and gangsters, but they do it in secret. Any ideology they espouse is just a costume. And I think there may be something to that statement. Uh, Daniel Sant Santel writes in um, with some links to a Rob Ager or Rob Ager short film talking about They Live. And I haven't watched it myself yet, but I have watched some of Rob's other work and enjoyed it. So I will one one of these days, I'm sure, I hope, get time to, to get around to watching that. So thank you, Daniel, for leaving that. Uh, JM left a very, very lengthy comment. In fact, too lengthy, as uh, comments on CorbettReport.com should be kept to about 500 words to avoid big walls of text. But he left a very lengthy comment talking about his own uh, beliefs and experience with the reptilian agenda. And uh, I do appreciate the comment, but I do want to make 100% crystal clear that I myself do not subscribe to the literal idea that uh, lizards really do rule the world. I certainly do not believe that. It's a powerful metaphor in some ways, but it is, uh, in my opinion, nothing more than a metaphor. Uh, Sophia writes with a very short comment, D.H. Lawrence, never trust the teller, 
trust the tale. Very interesting. And uh, Fosca writes with a link to an uh, an entire line of clothing, obeyclothing.com, which features, I think in some of them, feature the exact same font as in the movie, but at any rate, the very same stark contrast of just the word obey written on uh, various sweatshirts and t-shirts and the like. So very, very interesting and, and somewhat creepy, as he points out. Although it, it brings to mind there was also a meme that went around with, I believe, Andre the Giant's face and the word obey. And that was a poster that started springing up or a paint graffiti or something that started springing up a, a decade or two ago, I think. And uh, I, I, there's a story behind that. I, I believe it's related to Shepard Fairey and, and all of that. But at any rate, I looked that up when I was researching this, uh, the, the uh, FLNWO last month, but I forget the details at the moment. But uh, I do want to thank everyone for participating in that comment thread and all the comment threads at corporatereport.com. Once again, you can sign up for a membership there uh, so you can start leaving your own comments. Uh, just uh, you can go to the login uh, button or you can go to support and go down to membership. Either way, click on that and you'll find the subscribe button and you can subscribe for as little as 100 yen a month. That's $1 a month, although, of course, larger amounts are greatly appreciated. And if you do subscribe, uh, please uh, note that it's not an automatic subscription pro- process. I have to actually enter your details into into the back end of my system. So it can take a few hours or even as much as 24 hours to get you entered in. So please uh, do have patience if you do sign up for a subscription. All right, and on that note, please, of course, do leave your comments to this month's conversation. I'm looking forward to seeing what you have to say about that, and I'm very, very, very much looking forward to next month's conversation. So this is the part where I sign the homework for you for next month to get prepared for FLNWO number 20, I suppose it will be. Grave of the Fireflies. This is a 1988 Japanese animation film. And for those of you who are turned off by the idea of an animated film, I assure you, well, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else, but I can assure you that it is one of my favorite movies of all time. An exceptionally powerful movie, and I think a nice refreshing change of pace from the Hollywood predictive programming that we've been examining here for the last uh, few months. And uh, and I'm very, very much looking forward to that conversation. So, if you can find yourself a copy of Grave of the Fireflies, or Hotaru no Haka, if you speak Japanese, uh, uh, you can get prepared for that and in preparation for next month's conversation, which of course will be on the third Monday of October. And until then, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Thanking you so much for joining me again this month. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon. <laughs>